This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus, episode 715. This week, we welcome Dr. Gigi Quick-Gronval and Dr. Richard Bruns. We're going to discuss the recently developed Model State Indoor Air Quality Act. Before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. They're the reason we can continue doing the show. And don't forget, afterthoughts.iaqradio.com, after the show, sponsored by First On Site. IAQ Radio Plus Marquee Sponsor is First On Site Property Restoration at firstonsite.com. IAQ Radio Association Sponsors are ACGIH, the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists at ACGIH.org. AIHA, the American Industrial Hygiene Association at AIHA.org. IICRC, the Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification at IICRC.org. The Restoration Industry Association, RIA, at restorationindustry.org. The Environmental Information Association, EIA at EIA-USA.org. IAQ Radio Industry Sponsors are Particles Plus at ParticlesPlus.com. TSI Inc. at TSI.com. Tramex Meters at TramexMeters.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine at HealthyIndoors.com. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man. Hello, everyone. Congratulations go out to Don Weeks, Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, who was first to identify electrical impedance as the electrical engineering term defined as the measure of the opposition that a circuit presents when a voltage is applied. Here's today's trivia question. What is a common theme between today's month and date, the largest city in Pennsylvania, a tavern, and a U.S. military branch? Back to you, Joe. All right, so we've got Dr. Gigi Granval. He's a she's a senior scholar at John Hopkins Center for Health Security and an associate professor in the Department of Environmental Health and Engineering at John Hopkins Blueberg School of Public Health. She is an immunologist by training. Dr. Richard Bruns is a senior scholar at John Hopkins Center for Health Security, working on economic modeling and cost benefit analysis of a variety of public health topics. Previously. He was a senior economist at the Food and Drug Administration doing cost-benefit modeling of many FDA regulations and actions. Welcome, both of you. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you. Let's start with um, the the Model State IAQ Act here. That's uh, that's a little bit of a mouthful, but it's it's an important, I think, an important topic. But before we get there, let's let's get a little bit about your background. First, Dr. Granval, Granval. Can you tell our audience a little bit about your position at Hopkins and health security and then how you got interested in indoor environments? Sure. So um, this is 
this is a little bit driven by the pandemic. Um, so I, I have an immunology background. I have been uh, concerned about infectious diseases for, for years. And, uh, and in the beginning days of, of COVID, um, it brought to light for a lot of people just how important indoor air quality really is to reduce infectious risks. And um, and so so that is uh, that is a big part of of how I got into this um, and really focused originally on schools and what we could do to to address problems in indoor air quality in schools um, if related to the pandemic. But then as we got into it and learned a lot more, we realized just how much of a deficit there had been for so long when it came to when it comes to indoor air quality in schools. So so that's that was that was my my origin story for for indoor air quality. And and Dr. Bruns, the same question for you, but um I also want to thank you. You kind of helped me out. I've been trying to kind of wrestle with what is the John Hopkins Center for Health Security. And um you, you helped me with that. It's kind of like a think tank in, in, in some ways, but it's also affiliated with the university. Correct me if right. I'm wrong. That's right. All right. And then how did you get involved in this big, you know, indoor air quality program? Your background's more in economic modeling, I believe, and, and working with the FDA. Yeah. So three and a half years ago, I had been working at the center for about a year. And Paula Olsuski said, hey, we're going to start work on indoor air quality. Uh, who has time to join the team? And I thought, OK, yeah, I've got a bit of time. This seems like something that cost benefit analysis would help with that I might be able to help out with. So I'll just learn what I can about IEQ in a hurry and see if I can help out. And I've been working with the team ever since. I see. And, and you know, Going back real quick to Dr. Gronval, you, you you talked about doing work with indoor air quality in schools, and you guys had a great infographic on, um, you know, what schools can do to improve their indoor air quality. I, I think it kind of leads well into our, our conversation here, and I don't know if I've, I've got John to pull it up or not, but can you tell people a little bit about that and what the key components to a good indoor air quality plan are? So, I mean, this is uh, the kind of the kind of recommendations that we had at that time are still things that that are important. And and uh, thankfully, you know, we didn't the advice that we gave didn't didn't age poorly. Um, but just really to to give some power to schools that they they had to um, to not like, for example, not spend a lot of time with excessive cleaning, especially if they're using uh, volatile chemicals to, to do that cleaning, um, to do what they can to, um, you know, circulate the air, whether that's opening a window, if window opening isn't possible, but to, you know, to have a, an air purifier and to stay, uh, to focus on proven technologies. So we, we had to focus on, on that in this, in this report. Um, so we, we talked to a number of educators to, to help us target our our recommendations at the right level and also to make sure that we highlighted the importance of like not spending time um you know doing excessive cleaning because you could potentially cause more harm than good so so that uh richard did i did i capture what our main main points were yeah sounds about right yeah i noticed there was another i don't know there was a point too that that we've been kind of uh focused on with some interviews that we've done, and that's not to use these, I don't know, to discourage um, some of the the additive chemistry that's used for indoor air quality. Um, 
Yeah. So we have a situation with schools, especially where you have, you know, developing children, developing lungs. You want to make sure that uh, that, you know, I think that the bar is higher for, for making sure that you have um, proven technologies that are brought into the into the mix. So, yeah, that's that was and, and we were, you know, as a as a parent, I was also on the Baltimore City um, Public Health Advisory Group. For for the city school system and my kids are are our students in this in the system. Um, it was just really uh, I was glad to be in a, a place where they were actually taking advice. And a lot of a lot of schools around the country were not taking advice or not using the um, the federal dollars that are still available to be able to make improvements to HVAC systems, et cetera. So so that's something that we want to focus on in addition to the act we want to help people help st school systems you know take advantage of those dollars and we have other projects going on to to you know expand our our what we can do in the indoor air quality space well one of these projects is this development of a model state indoor air quality act where where did the idea for that come from and that's a kind of a jump ball question either one of you can take it or both well, we started this, so we had a little bit of experience with uh, with model acts uh, for, there was one for public health measures that we were involved in a few, some years back, uh, well before the pandemic. And, and the idea is that, you know, you give, that states may be able to do things that the federal government can't. And, and so, and then it, you can, uh, states can, can take this model law and they can add things to it or remove things that you know that that don't make sense to them and you can but it, it gives people the tools that they um you know that they need to be able to put something into place and so that's why we wanted to do that for indoor air quality because there's a real deficit at the federal level in addressing this issue richard what what did i leave out um, that pretty much matches my memory of events. I think you were there before I was, but we were doing our reports, thinking about what the option was. And we had our national advisory committee meeting before, and we had, I think, Ashish Jha, the White House coordinator, basically saying they don't anticipate federal action on this. This is a laboratory of federalism kind of thing where the states have to take the lead. I mean, our center normally does a lot of work with federal policy, trying to influence the federal government and working through states is a new thing for us. But we realized that's what it takes because uh, it's a local issue, building codes, local health departments. So we have to if we're going to make the change, make it happen at the state level. So it's been a learning curve for all of us trying to figure out how to you know, build coalitions, make it happen at the state level. We yeah, had great, uh, just a, Richard mentioned our advisory group. We all, we had some wonderful advisors um, who had a lot of expertise in all uh, many aspects of indoor air quality, but also we um, had some legal draft or legal help uh, with uh, James Hodge and um, Erica White at Arizona State University that helped to make sure that the law was written or that the act was written in a way that it wasn't like, you know, it was kosher with the, whatever the Supreme court is doing, et cetera. So I'm a scientist by training, not a lawyer, but, um, but you know, I, the lawyers say that it works. 
you know, it makes more sense to me now why you went state instead of federal. I mean, the bottom line is that's where it might happen. And and on the federal level, it just wasn't going to happen, I guess. And, yep. uh, okay. All right. Very interesting. John, can you pull up the model um, model state indoor air quality act so we can talk a little more about it, some, some specifics in it? Um, first thing is some people immediately, you know, you, you talk about a, a law or an act, whatever it may be. Um, people have an immediate negative reaction to any new regulation. What's the reaction been like so far? Have, have you gotten much negative feedback or has it, have you gotten much positive feedback? Mostly, I would say mostly positive feedback. Um, I think some people, uh, you know, there, it depends on which community you're talking about. I think it's important for people to know on, on this, uh, on the show that this is giving states like an infrastructure to be able to do something about indoor air quality. It doesn't say you must, uh, it's not prescriptive. It doesn't say like you must have so many air changes per hour, or you must use this piece of equipment, or you must monitor or report um, in this particular way. It really is just about creating a system so that states can do all of those things, that they can um, be more specific if they choose to be, but they, but it doesn't, uh, so I think, uh, you know, there are people who have a much more technical background who are looking through this and saying, well, where does it say, you know, what we should be doing at the, um, you know, uh, like what, what a building owner absolutely should be doing. It, it doesn't do that. It, it just really gives states the capacity to, to regulate in this area. Yeah. And that's one of the things I noticed. And, and, and one of the questions I had, you know, because this is such a broad area, indoor air quality, there are so many parameters that affect indoor air quality. Um, I, I was wondering, and John, go to the cover, if you would, for just a minute. Uh, I, I want to first acknowledge who helped pay for this. This is a lot of work. And uh, Dr. Bruns, maybe you could tell us who these two groups are. Sure. So Open Philanthropy and Effective Giving are two large charitable organizations that try to focus their giving on causes that are important, neglected, and tractable. They try to do things that other people aren't supporting. So when Paula Olsuski, our colleague, was being hired uh, to work with the Center for Health Security, our bosses asked her, so what's the competition? Who else is trying to be a policy think tank working on indoor air quality? And Paula said, there aren't any. Nobody else is doing this. So we brought that information to these charities who have been, again, they're very generous in trying to do things that are important, that could make a difference, that's actually you know possible, but that other people aren't doing. And they've basically given us pretty open funding to pursue this for years without having to do a bunch of complicated regrants so that we can actually take this all the way to the finish line and try to get policy happening at the state level. And, and so this took years to develop? Well, our team has been working for about three and a half years on putting out information for schools to help them out and building up a team, contacting people, figuring out the right thing to do. But this particular act was made pretty quickly. Um, basically, we started working on it about a year ago after the National Advisory Committee meeting. And we had a very focused and disciplined approach of rounds of feedback, make sure that things happened. So we finished uh, producing this particular act in less than a year. John, if you would pull up the preface of, of the document here. I, I copied a couple statements here in my notes to, from the preface to help set up the rest of the conversation. If you can um, 
zoom in on that just a little bit. Uh, one was despite these clear benefits, there is little federal legal support to protect people's health through improved IAQ or to incentivize IAQ improvements. Consequently, major public health interventions have been left to the states to implement with inconsistent results over time. Compounding the problem and the health economic benefits of good IAQ are also not widely known. And I think that's one of the things that maybe one of the reasons that like an an economics guy got involved in this is the benefits of good IAQ are not widely known. Um, Was one of the focuses to kind of show people that this is also an economic benefit? Yes. Well, there's a lot of different benefits. There's the economic benefits, the health benefits. And very briefly, one of the things that the Food and Drug Administration, as part of the Department of Health and Human Services, like a lot of federal agencies do, is they have procedures for putting a dollar value on the health gains. In the bad old days, uh, you only valued it at lost wages or medical bills. But there's procedures that actually say, you know, you save people's lives, you make them healthier, and we put a dollar value on that based on the choices that people make to show that the benefit of this isn't just the economic numbers. It's a very large number. It's it's very hard to compare, you know, how to compare health to money, but there's procedures that the government has for making a choice to improve human health. And with those procedures, indoor air quality provides a lot of health benefits, you know, less PM 2.5, less viruses, less long-term problems, less asthma for children. And the valuation of that is very high. So it's not just the economic uh, benefits. There's the valuation of health benefits. So that's where that three to one or 100 to one numbers says. We're not claiming that the economy will grow by 100 times what the investment is or that somebody's going to have 100 times the amount of profit. That's putting a dollar value on the life and health gains. Now, as a lot of people like Joe Allen at Harvard have talked about, it often is profitable you have improved productivity, you have fewer sick days for your employees. And most of the high-end competent companies already know that. Like class A commercial real estate already has most of the good stuff that we're doing. And the benefits of our law, like we don't expect that class A commercial real estate will have to do any more than they're already doing. We're just trying to bring the low end of the market up to the current acceptable levels. So that's, yeah, that, that's what that's what those numbers mean is the monetized life and health gains in addition to the economic stuff uh, as one the standard thing, government policy approach. One thing that I just want to add is that, you know, that um, is about like public knowledge about the mm-hmm. indoor air quality. And I think I think the pandemic really did um, make it much clearer to people that the importance of indoor air, but then followed up by the California or the Canadian wildfires. I think people really had an even more appreciation for just what, how indoor or how air can affect them. And I think, I think this is only going to grow over time, or at least that's my, my hope as, as we learn more about the health effects of, of bad air and, um, you know, there's uh, every day, it seems there's a, a new study that links something that might not be immediately obvious, but that, you know, that has a, um, a health, uh, you know, that is a health, a bad health effect that's caused by by bad, uh, by breathing bad air. So that's, I, I am 
optimistic that as people have a better understanding of that and they also see that there's something that can be done about it, that there'll be more and more demand for this kind of, of regulation in the space. Now, one of the other things, a lot of our past guests, um, and including some that were on your team, I noticed that, uh, John, if you want to run down that list of people that were part of the team that helped to develop this, have focused more on code and ASHRAE standards to help affect indoor environments. I noticed you, you made an effort to tie changes to code in here somehow, and I wonder if one of you could comment on the importance of that. Sure. I was a member of the ASHRAE 241 infection control standard that was recently released. And like, like Gigi mentioned earlier, there's an important difference between legislation and regulation. This thing that we've developed is an enabling statute, a legislation that tells the state, you need to get a committee of people together and make good regulations according to the most recent science that are appropriate for the climate and you know population conditions in your state. So what we would encourage people to do after they enact our model state law is to get a committee of people together and say, okay, what are the requirements? And we would encourage them to use ASHRAE standards like 62.1 and 241 as the guidance for most of the regulations that they're building under our statute. So, John, go to the table of contents, if you would, for just a minute here, because I think we can help our our audience a little with... um, how this is supposed to work. And I and I, I hope the two of you can help me kind of get through to people how it's supposed to work. Um, keep going. There, there we go. Okay. So can one of you kind of, kind of break down for us, like why you broke it down in the way you did here with purposes and, uh, and definitions? Of course, that's, you know, any, any uh, legislation is going to have that up front, but then, You've got the building testing and requirements and the in- investigations and reports, and there's a under mission scope and awareness. I think one of the most important things in here is develop is putting together this IAQ advisory council. Maybe you could expand on that a little bit. Well, Richard just started to, to talk about that, um, and and just broadly, this uh, as this act doesn't say like you must do this specific thing. It says you must, you should have this advisory council, which will help you to say you should do this this specific thing. And so, it, you know, it's it's really uh, giving states the infrastructure to be able to do something about indoor air quality. Richard, do you want to? Yeah, my on? understanding is the law. There's a certain method or procedure that lawyers do when drafting these things, and it's kind of laid out to help you understand as you're reading it. Like you start with the preface that gives the science our overall approach to things. And then you have start with the definitions. And then the first things that the state will do, you know, set up the advisory council, set up uh, stuff. And then we talk about, okay, now that you know that, you have the background to understand what we're requiring next, which is the testing and assessment. Then it moves on to the other parts of the law. So it's kind of reading comprehension, making things fit together, helping you understand this big, complicated thing as best as possible when you read through it. One of the big pieces here that's important is is that is monitoring. So right now, um, it's a real gap. If you go into a public space, unless the building owner is, is very forward thinking about it, you have no idea what the indoor air quality is. And that's 
that's one of the that's a big part of this act is that it asks uh, building owners to uh, to actually post this information. And and this has a couple of different benefits. One is, you know, you if you're going into that place then you then you know what the air quality is, but also just raising awareness that there is an expectation that you have um, you are if you're going into a public indoor space that you have uh, good air to breathe inside. Is there any follow-up documents being considered that might help people? I mean, I can just imagine this IAQ advisory council getting together and being all over the place about what is important and what we should monitor and what we should, we should be telling the public about our indoor environment and so on. Um, Are there any plans maybe to put together kind of a model of the the, speci- the more specifics uh, of what types of constituents to monitor and how to publish those? Yeah, yeah. As soon as we get this passed in any state, we're going to suggest a model regulation to go along with the model legislation. So, yeah, we're going to be part of this process, be a technical advisory group helping people out for the long run. Yeah, I, see. I have a vision, um, and we're still, it's still very early days, but I'd love to see a tracker where we where you can scroll across the different states and see how well they're they're implementing um, all of these things so we can and also to provide support and case studies and how states can can uh, can productively learn from the experiences of others so I have um, yes we will definitely be be doing more support and and try to give information as uh, as states you know to go down this path. Yeah, I, I could just see a lot of uh, yeah, and and within here somewhere they talk about the types of people that should be a part of this IAQ council, um, and it's a pretty broad range of people. I, I can imagine they would have different views on you know what should be monitored, how we how we monitor it, and so on and so forth. That's that's a lot of the concerns I get from from our audience, the type of people we have in our audience. But before we get into that anymore, who? right now is anybody trying to adopt this so so far we um have heard that well massachusetts has introduced uh something it's been introduced it's not been enacted um and and in wisconsin there's uh some portion of it has has been introduced and we're working on some other states and probably um uh, you know prioritizing others but but this is still early days. You know, we just uh, we just published the the act. We just released it in August, and then we just had a um, published a, a paper in JAMA not just a few weeks ago um, on on like kind of a short cheat sheet a cheat cheat sheet about the act and what it what it's supposed to do. Excuse me. I got a text question. Johns Hopkins had one of the best COVID dashboards during the pandemic. Do they have access to any of those folks to help with the dashboard dashboard for this kind of project? Um, so the dashboard has been certainly the most famous thing that uh, for for Johns Hopkins. <laughs> um, there were there were other things behind that dashboard, and and we did uh, provide some some support for that. Um, a lot of the work that I did was on on that was related to that was on diagnostic tests and and uh, not not had so not nothing to do with indoor air quality. But yes, we are learning from as much as we can from from what has been done and worked so well before. 
Cliff, before we go to halftime, I want to make sure you get a chance to jump in if you have a follow-up. Yeah, I, I just, just you know, I, I do have one. Um, actually, do you have any idea what percentage of buildings, these commercial Class A real estate properties, still have like low vacancies or no vacancies due to people working at home? And whether that has had any effect on slowing down the interest in your mission? So no, I'm not tracking the commercial real estate. We we're basically kind of slow rolling this. We've mostly talked to people in the indoor air quality community. We're trying to find as many contacts as we can to building owners to understand their concerns, to make sure that uh, we get as many people as possible on board with this, or at least not fighting us. But my understanding of the situation so far is, yeah, it's an important issue. A lot of business owners are struggling, but given that it's a buyer's market, a lot of potential tenants are demanding better air quality. So to the extent that there has been public awareness of the issue, a lot of people are saying, hey, I've got choices. I could be in a lot of different buildings. I want to go for the one that's healthiest for my people. Fair enough. All right, let's go to halftime, John. And when we come back, we'll, we'll talk a little more about some of the ins and outs of the Model Indoor Air Quality Act. Our marquee sponsor is First On Site, your trusted full-service disaster recovery and property restoration company at firstonsite.com. Our association sponsors are ACGIH, advancing careers of professionals in environmental health, industrial hygiene, and safety, interested in defining their science. ACGIH.org. AIHA, healthy workplaces, a healthier world. AIHA.org. The Environmental Information Association, EIA's multidisciplinary membership collects, generates, and disseminates information concerning environmental and occupational health hazards in the built environment at eia-usa.org. The IICRC, a nonprofit standards development and certifying body for the cleaning and restoration industry, iicrc.org. The Restoration Industry Association, the oldest and largest nonprofit professional trade association dedicated to providing leadership and promoting best practices through advocacy, standards, and professional qualifications for the restoration industry at restorationindustry.org. Industry sponsors are Particles Plus, feature-rich particle counters and air quality instrumentation. Count on us, particlesplus.com. TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for monitoring indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations, TSI.com. Tramex Meters, developing modern dynamic moisture meters and humidity monitoring systems since 1974, TramexMeters.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online magazine for industry professionals and consumers, HealthyIndoors.com. All right, we're back with Dr. Grunvel and Dr. Brunson, and I want to. We're talking about the Model State Indoor Air Quality Act, and and I, I'm kind of curious. So I, I want to try and take a couple of the questions that came in on the chat and, and combine them with one that that I had talked about. 
some of the people that have the most problems with indoor air quality are very sensitive. So they're not the, you know, like the 90% of the, of the population out there. How do you see that being handled in a, a state law eventually? I, I understand this is an act and you're trying to get people to write a regulation that probably would cover that, but how do you see that being covered? You're asking like, you know, that the problems are going to be focused on just a a small percentage of people versus the majority. Um, I don't know if if I necessarily think that's the case. I mean, so the act covers public spaces um, that, you know, so it doesn't cover like homes inside people's homes. It doesn't cover private spaces uh, like in a hotel, uh, you know, it doesn't cover the the room that you would have in a hotel, but it covers places where you put the public goes. And so, you know, if you're if you're, um, you know, a lot of, since a lot of the the problems of bad air are um, maybe diffuse, maybe won't not be as acute in in uh, most people, but it's still something that we are all kind of having to you can't choose to not breathe in certain environments. So we are kind of, you know, all affected by it. But what do you think, Richard? Yeah, the variation in sensitivity is always a difficult topic. When I was working at Food and Drug Administration on the gluten-free labeling rule, we ran into some people are just messed up a little bit by gluten in their food. Some people literally have their stomach dissolve and like it wrecks their entire life. And there's an equivalent in terms of how vulnerable people are to environmental chemicals and air quality. And a lot of the people who are interested in partnering with us are people like transplant recipients, the immunocompromised, people with other sensitivities. So, of course, they're going to be very interested in lobbying and helping make public spaces safer. But unfortunately, it simply isn't possible for us to make all public spaces completely safe for everyone, even the most sensitive people. So I anticipate that the regulation will mostly be designed where it reduces the risk to most of the normal people. It'll make your life a little better if you're extremely sensitive, but we as a society simply couldn't afford to make every public space a clean room, nor should we try to do that. So We can do what we can for the people who are extremely sensitive, but the regulation is overall going to be aimed at improving health for the average person of the population for a reasonable price. You know, that's that's an interesting way of looking at it. I I think um, those of us in the in the field out there doing indoor air quality assessments, we're we're commonly dealing with people who are more sensitive than others. And it's it's a difficult issue. And I think it's even more difficult when you're trying to write uh, a regulation like or a, a an act like this, although it becomes even more difficult when you get into the regulation phase of things, I think. Um, Dr. Bruns, on, on the economic side of things, um, I'm wondering what kind of stood, when you started looking at the economics of good indoor air quality, what kind of stood out at you? For you? Well, the thing that stands out is all of the evidence showing that particulate matter, the fine particulates, PM 2.5 or smog, like there's a lot of really good epidemiological studies. And obviously, it's very hard to do a proper, you know, double blind controlled experiment on these kind of things. So you have to use somewhat messier statistics. But there's a lot of evidence, especially on outdoor PM 2.5 from a lot of different places in China, where you see 
the difference, like if a place is more polluted, you see more emergency room visits, more people dying of heart attack and stroke. There was an interesting study based on a natural experiment in a toll plaza where a toll plaza switched to easy pass. This was a long time ago. And all the people in the surrounding neighborhood got a lot healthier. There was less asthma, less heart attacks and strokes just because there weren't so many cars idling around. And mm -hmm. a lot of our evidence comes from that kind of outdoor thing. And we're transferring it to, okay, there's harm indoors as well. There's a lot of other studies like ventilation in California schools is responsible for less absence. So there's, it's not as well studied as we would like, but I was just impressed consistently by the quality of evidence showing how much air quality affects people, how much it makes them sick, and how you could improve it by some simple standards that just aren't being adopted because people don't see the causality. It's kind of like eating unhealthy where you're like, oh, you know, just one cookie isn't going to mess with me, but you have a bad habit. And then, you know, 20 years later, you get a heart attack. Same thing with indoor air. Like there is the acute effects, but the long-term chronic effects that wreck people's lives and health 20 years later from stuff they don't know about, there's a lot of evidence there that like we got to act on and you understand why people don't because it's kind of an invisible killer. And this is this is also true with with especially true with schools when you think about how um, you know a lot of the health effects may take some time to to develop unless you have unless you have a population or person who's very sensitive to them, but I mean you do see a pretty quick effect of of cognitive benefits mm -hmm. of, of good air and and it has been that was something that really shocked me just how good evidence we have that you know that improving air in schools could lead to not only better health but like you know better cognition that seems it just uh it just just kind of shocking that we haven't done more about it sooner you know i'm i got a text kind of comment here that that makes me think of a question here and they're, they're talking about failing to measure public indoor space not only impacts health because you don't consider five IAQ technologies that trigger health events for folks with sensitivities, okay, but also possess a significant risk of increasing energy. I just wonder about that energy. How much did that focus into the work you did in trying to put together a model act? Because that I find that to be a huge uh, area of uh, conflict, I would say, in schools. You know, the energy guys, the energy group wants to do this and the the people that are dealing with IAQ and maintenance may want to do something different. Uh, I'm wondering, you know, how did, how much did energy come into play when you were developing this? A little bit. Like energy costs are part of the cost that I've calculated. They're definitely included. And when I include that cost benefit ratio showing that the benefits are so much higher than the costs, I include the capital costs, the labor costs, the energy costs, and also the external costs of global warming. So there's standard procedures for calculating how much global warming is expected to harm everyone in the world. And I use the high end numbers of those. And even then, even with all of the energy use and global warming effects that you might have from upgrading the HVAC system, the health effects are much, much higher. And a good upgrade can actually do both. You can improve health. There's a lot of better technologies. I'm sure your listeners are very familiar with the energy recovery systems that cost a little bit more up front, but save the energy costs. But I, I think 
I'm an optimist about coming solar power. I think that in the next 10 or 20 years, solar power will make energy a lot cheaper and a lot cleaner. And then we won't have to worry about these trade-offs so much. We can just say, yeah, make people healthier and don't worry about the energy costs because we've got cheap, clean energy coming in. So I think if you're designing a new building now, maybe pay a bit less of attention to the energy cost because in the future, it shouldn't be so much of an issue and people will care a lot more about health. All right, John, let's go to the outline again. I kind of want if if one or both of you could kind of walk us through how you see this happening within the state. So we've got this act. Um, we've got, if we go to the table of contents there, John, it's a little further down. Um, kind of walk us through how you see this happening within a state or if it's already happening in, in one of the states you mentioned before. Um, how you see this moving along as time goes on? Well, just to okay. state that it, there's no, um, there there are states, I mean, most states have something on the books when it comes to indoor air quality um, uh, about one one aspect or another, whether it's, you know, radon or, um, you know, I don't know, cigarette smokers, you know, there's lots of, there's lots of, but to call it a, a pat, like a patchwork is kind of an insult to patchworks. And so... <laughs> It's a it's it's you know that that's the kind of uniformity and common operating procedures you know that's kind of what we're we're trying to achieve here with this with this act that people that states will have you know the the infrastructure to be able to have you know not just one and deal with one aspect of indoor air quality but to to more generally address indoor air quality within the state and and so the um you know, it, it asks for for building owners to um, to monitor and to post their their uh, their indoor air quality. Um, the the advisory council is very important, and as as far as this, by like recommending specific uh, targets for buildings, and also to to identify which uh, which building which types of buildings are are in um that need to to be part of this this act so the the, the act uh, i'm trying to picture how this would happen in in a state legislature they would they would take this document and then um first is there have to be some kind of like uh, enabling legislation that that allows them to go into doing the following like setting up the iq council Okay, That's yeah, I can walk you through. Thing is, this go is ahead. enabling legislation. Sorry, Richard. That's exactly what this is. Okay, go ahead, Richard. Were you asking about the process by which we hope this model act will become an actual state law? Yes. Okay. Yeah, so that process starts with uh, somebody in the state, like a particular state assembly person or legislator has to introduce it. And somebody has to rewrite this so it's particular to their individual state. So whenever we say the state agency, that has to be replaced with, you know, the Pennsylvania Department of Health and Human Services or whichever one is appropriate. Some of them might be under a different name or a different organization. So it has to be written, rewritten to take into account existing state laws to work with their existing code. And then there's the standard political process of lots of it's going to be debated on the floor. There will be a hearing. We're trying to get as many people as possible to support it. You have, okay, what do the industry think? What do the unions think? What do the public health people think? Different people would argue for and against. 
And at the end of that process, well, if we have enough support, if we built up a big enough team or coalition and people see the voters are behind it and enough of the relevant stakeholders are behind it, then we hope that enough people vote for it. But that's we're at the beginning of that process. We are talking with different people who can make that happen. And there will often be variations in the state, like if the state politics will not support what they might consider too much they might want not want this thing because people in the state don't like it we'll figure out how to make tweaks to the law so it can be passed and make sure the people in the state are happy with it but still fulfill most of the mission so you would you would help those people with making those tweaks or you expect them to make them themselves or maybe either or well, it's kind of both. We don't have the resources to you know, do a lobbying effort in all 50 states. Sure. So we're focused on a couple of states uh, where we're going to actually be more working more closely with the people trying to make it happen. Other states, if they decide to do it on their own, we'll definitely give them advice and support whenever we can. So, yeah, we're open to talk with anybody who wants to encourage this or who is working on it and help them out as much as we can as they go through the process of making it work for their state. The good thing about indoor air quality is that even though, you know, it's it, it's not cost-free, it, it is very popular, I, I think, you know, and I think that that's, uh, and it, it doesn't have natural divisions like a lot of, um, at least not yet in, in politics, because, you know, every, it, it does enjoy a lot of support that people really do want good air to breathe. So, so at, at least for right now, um, I hope, hope that it remains that way. Somewhere in here, I'm, I'm trying to look through the, the table of contents, but there, there's got to be a state agency either either uh, developed or you give this process, these uh, responsibilities to one that's already in place. And I can see a lot of resistance to developing a state agency that, oh, you yeah. know, would, would oversee this. Can you talk about that just a little bit? Yeah, I think um... – you know, there's a decision. Um, so I, I, I don't have, um, I only have a little bit of experience at the state level, and that's mostly in California, where I was working on a very different topic, gene synthesis security, and helping them pass a, a law on the, the state about that. And and you know, they they had to choose an agency that was going to handle it, and they chose their their health and human services equivalent. But, you know, and that could be the what, you know, what states, another state might choose as well, or they could choose some sort of, you know, EPA like agency or worker protection agency. There's a there's a lot of different ways that, you know, depending on how the state is configured, uh, that which which agency will will take ownership. And and so, yeah, you have to you have to be flexible in this, because even though we have a lot of commonalities state by state and and there's there's a lot of variation at the state level and how how business gets done or not get done as the case may be so was it this written in a way where you could you know kind of pick and choose pieces that you want i know overall you've got to have the purpose definition the mission scope and awareness and so on but then after that it seems like it it would be on a state by state basis how how far, you know, how much they want to stick with this particular outline and what, and how much they want to do it themselves. Is that kind of accurate to say? 
not really a menu. Um, it's, uh, but it's trying to, I mean, yes, states can choose to not, and that not do the whole thing that we have laid out here, but we wanted to have a comprehensive system so that if a state was like, okay, we're going to start regulating in this area, we want to know more about the indoor air quality in public spaces, this infrastructure will help us do that. And then we can set specific standards and thresholds for for um, what we do about that. And once we know what what the indoor air quality is in these spaces, you know, as according to what we want to do. But um, you know, yes, states can can rename it. They can take pieces. They can uh, decide that that maybe that monitoring and posting is more important than any sort of. Um, uh, any of the civil remedies if people feel like they've been um, harmed by by poor air. Was there any thought on um, instead of you know making it as comprehensive as it is, maybe focusing on particular types of buildings like schools? I can see, you know, and even on the federal level, there's some structure for schools. Any thought on maybe focusing on one of those areas first? We decided to make it as comprehensive as possible. So this is a structure that works for everything. And it certainly is possible. You could basically take this model law and say, we're going to change it. So instead of applying to all publicly accessible buildings, it's only going to apply to government buildings, schools, libraries, transit centers. If the politics in the state have an appetite for the government, you know, protecting schools and libraries, but they don't want to put regulations of private industry, they could choose to do that and just have the same structure here to regulate government buildings instead of private buildings. And that could be a way of starting the process, seeing how it works, getting people used to it. And then later on, they might or might not apply it to more areas. So we're we're providing a comprehensive solution that could do everything. And if you take bits out of it randomly, you might break the thing. But there's plenty of scope to change it around to fit your needs, maybe narrow the type of buildings covered. Yeah, I kind of like that thought of, you know, maybe it's it's like if you get something started, then, you know, build it and they will come. If you, if you get it started in schools or in uh, government buildings or, you know, something that we already control quite a bit of, I mean, you know, the, the, there's already pretty significant regulation on how you do certain things in, in, in these buildings that it might be helpful. But Cliff, before I go to the roundup, any any follow-ups or questions from your side? No, I'm good. Thanks, Jim. All right, let's go to the roundup. All right, the roundup's brought to us by Tramex Meters. Uh, by the way, check out last week's show with Tramex Meters. Uh, the Reinhardt brothers did a great job. And uh, what I'd like to ask is, I want to give you a comment I read, and this is from the um, American Industrial Hygiene Association. I'm, I'm a member there, and they've got these you know chat rooms where people come in and make comments on things. And when uh, an article was put on there that talked about the Model State Indoor Air Quality Act, um, one of the people said, imagine a state regulatory body that can finally intervene and save all those office employees suffering from broad generic ailments that can be loosely attributed to the elusive condition in the building. Now imagine that regulatory body is 10 times more powerful than OSHA and can get rid of workers' sole remedy uh, to boot. Uh, can you kind of help us with people that are they're going to react that way is that what that, i don't i didn't get that when i read it but somebody apparently did and they're you know 
pretty pretty influential people. So we know that we're giving the states a lot of flexibility to do things. We're not being, you know, very precise or prescriptive. We're letting states go. And it but concerns both ways are valid. It's possible that the state advisory committee could put out rules that don't do anything at all, that just say, yeah, the bare minimum standards are fine. Nobody needs to do anything. And it's possible that they could have standards that are much more prescriptive than existing ASHRAE standards. And we that's just part of the risk of giving people a tool in a federal system, a tool that's designed to be flexible for local needs. So, yeah, it's possible that people could do bad things one way or another. But we we would hope with a properly inclusive political process that they will do something that's appropriate for their state. And I think including people who are adamantly opposed to any kind of regulation is probably important um, because, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're, they're the people that you're going to have to work with to get buy-in from a larger group. Um, also, they said consensus standards and building codes will have to be influenced directly if this approach is to have a sustainable effect. I think you're working on that. Yeah, there's a lot of good people working on making ASHRAE standards and ANSI standards better. Some of them are automatically adopted by reference into state building codes already, but like buildings, they last so long. Like old buildings, if they're not being renovated, changing the building code won't help protect the people in there. So what we're doing is a relatively minimal, again, we're not requiring annual inspections. We're just saying measure the concentration. And if someone gets sick, there's an investigation. Uh, We're doing what we can in addition. We're not doing design standards here. We're doing performance standards. And of course, the design standards are great on new buildings, but we're trying to add to them as well for the existing structures. Dr. Gronville, anything you wanted to add there? Yeah, I mean, just that, um, you know, we don't know what the future holds what will be, you know, right now, a lot of people were very influenced by the, the the Canada wildfires and they were thinking about indoor air quality in that perspective. But there, you know, it could be that there's something, some event that happens in a couple of years that will change people's perspectives once again. And maybe they will want to tighten restrictions in, in certain areas over others. You know, this is, that's the, where we're, that's one of the good things about this approach is that we're giving states an infrastructure to be able to make those changes and so that they can dial up or down based on their needs. You know, talking about things that might focus them, what, where are we? I know you've done a lot of work with COVID and, and right now things seem to be calming down. I don't know what the, the numbers are in your area, but it seems to be calming down to some degree. If there was a resurgence in COVID, um, do you think there would be more interest in, in, in model act like this? I think so. I think COVID is a lot of the thing is one of the things that made a lot of people really aware of the importance of indoor air quality. They hadn't thought about it before. And we it's hard to predict the future, but we anticipate that COVID is going to be more of a seasonal thing, kind of like the flu. Like it'll kill tens of thousands of people every year, pretty much forever, just like the flu has been doing. And indoor air quality can reduce those deaths substantially. And as the more people are aware of COVID, flu, RSV are constantly killing people, then yeah, people should care more about IAQ. I think it's just to add to that, um, infectious disease risks are are many and varied. And and with a you know a warmer 
climate, um, we can expect to see more of this kind of thing. It's not an indoor air, um, it doesn't affect indoor air quality or indoor air doesn't affect it at all. But we had a case in Maryland of locally acquired malaria. Like that didn't used to happen. And and so, you know, what else are we going to be seeing that that could uh, be, you know, made better by by paying attention to indoor air quality? I think that um, changing vaccination compliance is another thing that really concerns me. Um, you know, measles is something that we have a very good vaccine for. Some people are choosing not to get vaccinated. Uh, measles hangs around in the air for a long time. And so what can we do about those kinds of risks, uh, especially to people who cannot be vaccinated yet? Um, the, that's, that's, these are some things that drive me on the infectious disease side. Well, and, and being in the infectious disease side, that's a, that leads to another question I had for you. What, you know, what, what frightens you the most in that area um, that may come down the road? I mean, that is really it. You know, when you have a child before you, you know, I mean, people who have had young children, you, know, you go through this whole series of vaccines. There's a period of time where you have a child who is not, able to be fully protected against what we, the vaccines that we, uh, the diseases that we have vaccines for. So um, I, it was a, it was an area that it was, I was really concerned about when my kids were small, that like, you know, what are they going to be exposed to that, you know, that because they have, haven't gotten their full series yet, you know, and, and that is something that I, I worry is going to be more of a problem for measles, for, um, you know, chicken pox and other things that you know, people do not need to be getting sick with. Um, we do have vaccines, but it relies on adults, you know, being protected, or getting their vaccine, vaccines, and we can't always rely on that. And Dr. Bruns, you mentioned wildfires a few times. Do you see any other kind of, you know, um, indoor air quality related it doesn't necessarily you know wildfires are outdoor air but they become an indoor air problem do you see any other things that we should be watching for on the horizon you mean potential threats to people's health i do yes so at the center for health security we're very concerned about bioterror and we're worried that new ai design tools could make it a lot easier for bad actors to basically design a new virus that could spread airborne and is worth uh, really does a lot of damage. So we're trying to make sure that AI coming out is safe, that you can't use it to do dangerous things in the biology space. And that there's a lot of good people at the center working on making sure that these new AI tools don't let people do really dangerous things. That's, that's a great, I'm glad I asked that question. And, and then um, one of the things I think, the type of work you're doing here on this model act and others is, is kind of preparing buildings for what we don't know what's coming. Uh, that next black swan out there, we just don't know. And, and by having a system in place where you can, you can inspect, you can monitor, you can post information that would also help us with unexpected events down the road. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. And we are, are looking at different ways that, you know, we can, uh, we would, we're very interested in in seeing the trade offs of new technologies to be able to to address these threats as well in the future. I, I have a lot of faith in in technology being able to address problems, but we're also working on the we have to work on the social side too. That you know that states have the capacity to adopt new technological solutions to to these problems. 
Well said. Uh, Cliff, before we go, any final questions or comments? No, I'm good. Thanks, Joe. I want to give both of you the last word. Uh, please, anything we missed, anything you'd like to add? Let's start with Dr. Bruns. Um, make sure that you have good filters in your home. Uh, tell everyone you know, get MERV 13 or better filters. They're only, you know, 10 bucks, 11 bucks if you buy them in bulk. Spread the word. Just good filters in everyone's houses. You'll, you can do a lot of good. And Dr. Granville. Just a plea for if anyone wants to talk more about this and um, or if they they want they have something we didn't mention that they wish that, that we had, um, please, you know, we're very findable and uh, just come to our website. We have an email address there. You can contact us. I appreciate it very much. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, it was an interesting, you know. Sometimes somebody's got to go out there and take on the tough, you know, I mean, and get the slings and arrows that come with doing that. And uh, I'm sure you'll get plenty. But I, I also think that you what you put in place is kind of like, so, you know, I, I think we could build on that to prepare for the next problem that comes up, which we're not, you know, we're just not ready for. We have no idea what it will be even. So I appreciate you joining us. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guest, Dr. Bruns, Dr. Gronval. Uh, great job. And um, we'll put up the uh, blog and we'll put up the link to the website so people can get a hold of you if they uh, if they have any questions or follow up. I want to thank my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. John, you got to have faith at the controls. Most importantly, our loyal audience and sponsors. We'll be back next Friday at noon with the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening. 